What do you do if your best friend swindles you out of $20,000, then absconds with your girlfriend on a yacht? If you're rocket engineer and part-time cult leader Jack Parsons, you cast a magic spell to bring them back to port. And it works. Today's session will be covering the life and cultural influence of Jack Parsons. Parsons was a pioneer of American rocket science whose name is engraved on the Hall of Fame at the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena. He was a colorful character who didn't just dabble in the occult, but was knee-deep in black magic. In fact, some say that Parsons literally bridged the worlds of space and the supernatural, conducting a ritual that opened a gateway to another dimension. We will be covering all that and more on today's Spectral Skull Session. Stay tuned. You are listening to the Spectral Skull Session. Tales from the twilight world of myth, mystery, and imagination. The idea behind this podcast is that we explore claims about the occult, supernatural, and paranormal from an analytical standpoint. We're open to the existence of a world beyond the five senses, and we dismiss that dogmatic skepticism that insists that any story about the unexplained has to reduce to hallucinations or swamp gas. But we're not committed to any particular theory or philosophy about what the paranormal is, and we realize that, whatever is out there, the answer is likely to be more complicated than any existing model or theory. What we bring to the table is small s skepticism, a skepticism that we throw as much on the mainstream accounts as we do on the supernatural story. Okay, let's get started. Welcome back. A quick warning that today's episode contains some adult themes. In doing research for the show, I looked mostly at two sources, the biography Sex and Rockets, colon, The Occult World of Jack Parsons, and then the more recent biography Strange Angel, The Otherworldly Life of Rocket Scientist John Whiteside Parsons, published in 2006 by George Pendle. Everybody says the Pendle biography is better. The Carter biography goes into a lot more technical detail about Parsons' rocket work, as well as his occult work. So that's great. I also took a lot from the Babylon Working 1946, colon, L. Ron Hubbard, John Whiteside Parsons, and the Practice of Enochian Magic by Henrik Bogdan. That is a scholarly article in the Newman Journal. The journal is called Newman, 2016, volume 63. The first thing you need to know about Jack Parsons, he had a very unusual upbringing. Born in 1914, his parents, Ruth and Marvel Parsons, had traveled from Massachusetts to start a new life in Los Angeles. Even back in 1914, L.A. was a very liberal town with people from China, Japan, the Philippines, India, and Mexico all mingling with American transplants from the Midwest and East Coast. In this diverse cultural milieu, new religions were taking root, many of which you've probably never heard of. Christian science... New Thought, Theosophy. I actually went to high school down the street from a Christian science school. Uh, Confucianism also was making its way into sermons at some Protestant churches. Spiritualism and seances were becoming popular with the emerging Hollywood film set. And amidst all the palm trees and sombreros, the city was also a place where vice ran wild with drinking, gambling, and police on the take. Brothels were going up everywhere and a few months before the birth of his son, Marvel Parsons began visiting prostitutes. 
and by 1915, when his son was less than two years old, Marvel had been found out and forced out of the house. Jack's mother, Helen, would never forgive Marvel for his infidelity, and Jack grew up without knowing his father. His mother didn't even allow um, Jack to meet his dad. And so he was raised entirely by his mom. He grew up as a mama's boy. She would dress him like a dandy in uh, like a vest and wool blazer, knitted brown tie, leather shoes with the manners of a mama's boy and affected British accent. The other kids would just tear him up. So that was his early life. He was pretty isolated. He read a lot of the pulp fiction that was going around at the time. So at the time, there were these, like I said, Pulp Fiction. They're magazines printed on cheap paper, like amazing stories. These magazines were more like a mix of what we would call science fiction and fantasy. There wasn't a sharp delineation between the two genres at the time. So you might read an article about um, rockets on one page, and then you might turn the page and be reading a short story about vampires and werewolves. And so these books are said to have had quite an influence on Parsons. He would read them throughout his adult life, and he would hang out with science fiction or science fantasy authors. He knew famous Robert Heinlein, who's author of The Moon is a Harsh Mistress, as well as Stranger in a Strange Land, and others. And he knew a number of other, the great American science fiction writers of the early 20th century. And these were the guys talking about rockets. Rocketry at the time was looked down upon. The American consensus was that they did not have any practical application. This even though the National Anthem of the United States clearly contains references to rockets being used as a weapon. In the early 20th century, U.S. rockets were solely used for entertainment, for shooting lifelines from ships, and propelling whaling harpoons. So um, there were people around the world thinking about rockets. They were thinking about rockets in Germany. And Werner von Braun had already gotten started working on rocketry. He and Jack Parsons would actually correspond by letter and then telephone while Jackson, sorry, while uh, Parsons was still a teenager. But then, of course, World War II would intervene and Parsons would no longer be able to have conversations with his German friend. He wouldn't meet him or communicate with him again until after the war when the Americans launched Operation Paperclip and collected the uh, highest achieving scientists of the National Socialist regime and brought them to the U.S., giving them clemency and uh, putting them to work on our space program. The Russians were doing the same thing at that time. They were also very into rockets and interested in collecting Nazi scientists, but uh, the scientists didn't really want to go to Russia. They were much happier to be caught up by the United States, and so they were more likely to surrender to us than to surrender to the Soviets. I wonder why that is, huh? Reading stories about rockets, Parsons got the idea of making his own, and he just started doing it. Flat out, at the age of 14 or 15, somewhere in there, he and his best friend Foreman, who would work, they would work together for the rest of their lives, um, they began building rockets out in the desert, because he lived in Pasadena, and it wasn't, a tr wasn't much of a trip to get out to the Sequoia Arroyo, probably grossly mispronouncing that, 
Uh, it's a canyon near Pasadena. I've never, I don't think I've ever been there. They worked on their own for about eight years before they were able to secure funding from an outside source. And they formed a group called G-A-L-C-I-T when they finally got support from Caltech. And uh, that group later became the Jet Propulsion Laboratory. At first, they had a small grant from a private funder. Then they got some support from Caltech. At Caltech, they became known as the Suicide Squad because the rockets they were building often blew up either on the launch pad or before they were ready to go. They had several near misses where they nearly got killed or killed other people. At one point, they damaged a building at Caltech so badly, they had $250 worth of repairs and they had to move their laboratory out into the desert again. It wasn't until World War II started gearing up that they secured a large grant from the U.S. military to produce what was called JADO, Jet Assisted Takeoff. The idea here was that they would strap rockets onto propeller planes that were overloaded with cargo. The rockets would shoot off as the propeller plane attempted to take off. They would give the plane some extra lift. They would get it off the ground. Interesting story. When they were first testing these rockets, they, uh, they, they did a test where they had the plane on the ground. They mounted the rockets. The plane wasn't supposed to go anywhere, but just sit there. And they had the pilot... Now, the pilot was nearby, and they tested it, and they blew the plane up. So it wasn't totally destroyed, but the rockets exploded and um, damaged the plane. They managed to convince the pilot to do a real test anyway, even though they weren't completely sure they had figured out the problem with the rockets, why the rockets had a tendency to explode. And um, they did have one instance where the rockets exploded with the guy, with their pilot in the plane. He was okay. But then they had a successful test. Eventually, it turned out that um, Jack was able to figure out the problem. And the problem was that the uh, powder, when it was stored ahead of time, would crack. It would dry out and then crack. And the cracks would allow the ignition to travel very quickly through the, through the tube and thus cause an explosion rather than a controlled burning. He solved that by mixing the powder with a form of glue that he invented himself. And thus he rescued the JADO program. They were actually so on the line that they did not have the funds or the time to do another test and figure out why do these rockets keep exploding? They had to just kind of trust the uh, concoction he had thrown together. And of course, you know, they got away with it. But the uh, pilot then subsequently quit, didn't want to work with them anymore. And he went to another branch of the military and told stories about how insane they were. So Parsons had a reputation for being a daredevil and a person who took risks, always nearly blowing himself or other people up. Now, if you're interested, I would recommend going to the Pendle biography and you can read through the details of Parsons' technical achievements, including some photos from his patents and what exactly he did. Let me just read you, though, a summarizing quote about what he contributed to the field of rocket science. This is from George Pendle, Strange Angel. He revolutionized the public and academic perception of rocketry, transforming it from an object of ridicule into a viable science. In the process, Parsons invented a radically new kind of fuel, the descendants of which are still used in the space shuttle to this day, and helped found the Jet Propulsion Laboratory at Caltech, which has since become the world's preeminent institution for the exploration of the solar system. In many respects, the United States' path to the moon landings began with Parsons. So just to emphasize, too, what a high-achieving guy he was, he didn't have any formal credentials. 
Parsons finished high school, always struggled in school. Uh, he seemed to have a lot of trouble spelling, uh, which has led Pendle, the biographer, to suggest that he might have had dyslexia. He went to Pasadena City College, briefly dropped out. He also briefly had uh, it was like invited to go to Stanford, but then also dropped out. There, it seems to have had more to do with him having trouble paying the tuition than to do with struggling with his grades. But that's it. He didn't really ever get any more formal education. Parsons was distinguished by his creativity, his uh, willingness to do the dirty work himself, and his risk-taking. Something that fed into his complex reputation, he also had an interest in the dark arts. So he had a habit of reciting pagan verses when they would test a rocket. He would recite these verses in a prayer-like or ritualistic fashion as though he was blessing the rocket or in some way the rocket was supposed to be part of a greater evocation of something. And this gave him, again, kind of a dark reputation. Apparently the women loved it. I find this surprising, but he developed um, like a ladies' man reputation because he would he loved to talk about this stuff mostly with women. It was the um, uh, the stuff about paganism and history and poetry and well the occult. Uh, and so some people at one point actually had to ask him to stop coming around their office because he would show up and then chat up the lady secretaries with this kind of material and. Like I said, they loved it. So he was a lover of both high and low culture. As I said, he was avid reader of science fiction and maintained a very active interest in the science fiction community, going to meetings of the Los Angeles Science Fantasy Society on a weekly basis for many years. So active in what you might call low culture, these pulp magazines. He's also interested in the classics and interested in ancient religion and I guess it's between the two that his interest in occultism emerged. Parson writes that at the age of 13, he made an abortive attempt to summon the devil in his bedroom. Without giving details, Parson lets on that whatever happened as a result of the ritual, it upset him so badly that he stayed away from magic for many years. And Parsons wasn't the only person to get upset as a result of his own magic. Later in life, he would get his best friend Foreman involved in some magical rituals. At one point, allegedly, um, Foreman came home to, to his wife after a night of magic with Parsons. He looked out the window and said he saw banshees. Then he ran screaming and asking, can you hear it? His wife could not hear it. For the rest of his life, his entire family reports, he would, for the rest of his life, have moments where he would sometimes get quiet and ask if other people could hear a wailing sound, but they never could. Well, this interest in the occult didn't really take off until 1939, when Parsons and his wife were invited to the Agape Lodge which is a branch of the Ordo Templi Orientis, a quasi-Masonic mystery lodge that had been taken over by the infamous warlock Aliester Crowley. Operating out of the United Kingdom, the aging Crowley had integrated his own religion called Philema into the practices of the Ordo Templi Orientis, often just called OTO, 
The central teaching of Thelema is do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. The idea there is that um, your main purpose in life is to figure out your true will. If you can figure out your true will or essence and then you pursue that, the rest of the universe will just fall into place. Thelema is a compilation of magical, Crowley liked to call it magic, not magic, magical exercises to help you discover your true will. Things that Crowley himself borrowed from a lifetime of traveling and experimenting with different, often Eastern philosophies and religions like Tantra, Hinduism, Buddhism. So there's a lot of meditation, yoga practices, and there is what Crowley called sex magic, which is, you know, ritualistic activity where the sex drive is in some way harnessed in order to help the person focus. Thelemic rituals might involve group sex, but these rituals were only available in the OTO to people of the higher grades. So you couldn't just walk in the door and attend an orgy. You had to pay your dues and put in your time first. Parsons and his wife began attending ceremonies at the Agape Lodge. The Lodge was very enthusiastic about the young couple, and uh, they were, well, at least Jack Parsons was very enthusiastic about it and his involvement. Parsons quickly took on an air of authority, even though he was a newbie, telling the other Thelemites that new findings coming out of quantum mechanics indicated that there was something substantial to magic. Parsons began reading the Thelemic texts, for example, Crowley's biblical or Bible-like book, the Book of the Law. Let me say quickly as an aside, the Book of the Law allegedly was dictated to Crowley by a, by a spirit named Iwas through Crowley's wife. The crazy idea is that supposedly they were on their honeymoon in Egypt and they spent the night inside one of the Great Pyramids. Crowley's wife went into a trance and eventually came out that she was possessed by Iwas and Eventually, Crowley himself was then able to tune in spiritually to Iwas too, and uh, that's how the book the book came to Crowley then through this spirit. In any event, one of the teachings of Thelema is that um, you should not ever have any jealousy. It's a lower emotion, unworthy of a fully developed person, and therefore you should sleep around, not just with your spouse, but you should have some other people in your life as well. And so it should have come to no surprise to Helen Parsons, Jack's wife, when she returned from a trip she had taken to see her family without Jack and found that Jack had taken up with her younger sister, Betty. Betty, who was only 17 at the time, announced to her older sister that she was now Jack's new wife. By all accounts, Helen was not happy with this, but she went along with it eventually establishing a stable relationship with another member of the Lodge. Jack Parsons was asked by Aleister Crowley himself to become the new Lodge headmaster, and he did. He even went so far as to spend his own money to buy a house for the Lodge to stay at. He turned 1003 South Orange Grove Boulevard into a kind of boarding house slash meeting place for the Agape Lodge. Under Jack Parsons and Betty Smith's leadership, the lodge really flourished. It had two attractive young people, though remember Betty is much younger than Jack. He's in his mid-twenties at this point, 
and she's 17. Um, that is underage at the time uh, and would later come back to haunt Parsons. But under their leadership, the lodge was taking off. They were drawing in the young people who all wanted to come. And uh, the lodge actually developed a reputation for just being a place where there were straight up orgies taking place. The senior members of the Agape Lodge began to complain to Crowley that uh, it was less about the Lima and more about debauchery. In the middle of all this, Parsons is still actively running, doing research and advancing the world of rocketry for the U.S. military. This started to create problems. At one point, Parsons had brought a member of the Night Watch staff from what would become JPL. He brought one of the staff over to the house for what must have been an orgy or something, and the man had some kind of psychotic break, stole a gun from Parsons, ran through the streets, and hijacked a car, throwing the young couple who were necking in the car out and then stealing it. He would later go to prison for Grand Theft Auto and spend two years. Uh, Jack's supervisor at JPL would try to call him to account and receive unsatisfactory answers about what happened that evening. He was able to gather that it was some kind of seance. Uh, whether drugs were involved was unknown at the time, but this became a black mark on Parsons' reputation. The neighbors were continually calling the police, complaining about sex orgies happening in their backyard, and um, Parsons would always greet the police and reassure him that no, he was a Caltech scientist, and he was part of a philosophical club that met to discuss um, you know, questions about the nature of reality. But sooner or later, the FBI figured out that something was up, and Parsons developed a 200-page file about his degenerate and deviant activities. But actually, what would ultimately threaten his security clearance wasn't his unconventional lifestyle, but the fact that many of his colleagues that he worked with at JPL were avowed communists. For whatever reason, Parsons did not respond to communism. He uh, went to some communist meetings. It really wasn't for him. He was more of the occult sex orgy kind of guy. That was his thing. And so he steered clear of communism, but enough of his colleagues were involved in it that when the Red Scare rolled around at the end of the 40s, the FBI got very interested in him and there was a point where his uh, security clearance was threatened. But before that whole security clearance thing happened, Parsons ran into um, some more serious problems with his life. Some of the gentlemen that Parsons had been working with wanted to sell their business venture to a larger company, but larger company and the people who had been working with Parsons said they did not want Parsons involved in the future project. So they wanted to buy him out. And uh, my understanding is they wanted to buy him out, not so much because of his unusual lifestyle, but because he kind of had a reputation for taking risks and not following safety precautions. They wanted him out of there. They bought him out. According to the biographer Pendle, he may have lost as much as $20 million as a result of being forced to do an early buyout. That's very sad. But he was relatively flush at this point in time. He was also kind of out of a job, so he had less work at that point after being forced out. He got much more involved in the occult and running the lodge. This is where he ran into real trouble when science fiction author L. Ron Hubbard answered an ad 
saying that there was room available at the lodge. Hubbard showed up and somehow was able to out-alpha male Jack Parsons. Apparently, he was a better storyteller than Parsons. He had military experience, or so he claimed, all sorts of adventures that he would talk about. While Parsons had spent almost his entire life basically in Pasadena. And uh, Betty, Jack's lover and co-runner of the lodge, quickly transferred her affections to Hubbard. Now, have I mentioned that L. Ron Hubbard is the guy who founded Scientology? He hadn't yet written Dianetics, which was his sort of self-help program that would, that would lay the foundation for Scientology. That would come next. But uh, Parsons wrote very excitedly to Crowley saying that in Hubbard, he felt he had met someone who was at the next level. He said that although Hubbard didn't uh, know much about magic, or magic as they called it, that Hubbard really understood it in principle and seemed to be a magical person. And then kind of added almost as an aside that Betty had transferred her affections to Hubbard. Crowley at this point was taking almost like a grandfatherly role with respect to Jack Parsons and wrote Parsons back to be wary of that guy, which was probably good advice because Hubbard soon sold Parsons on the idea that he, Parsons, and Betty should all go into a business venture together where they buy yachts on the West Coast, then sail them around, to the, around through the Panama Canal to the East Coast and unload the yachts at a higher price. Hubbard agreed to go in with this and gave Hubbard his life savings of $20,000. But we know Hubbard had no intention of following through on the program. He was on disability leave from the military and he had written the military a letter asking permission to go on a sailing adventure to South America to collect material for a new book. Crowley wrote to Parsons saying, that uh, he thought Hubbard was a flat-out confidence man and that he needed to take action. Apparently, Parsons took this advice to heart, but at that point, he didn't know where Betty and Hubbard were. He discovered that they had actually set sail out of the L.A. Harbor. Unable to do anything to bring them back, he invoked the god of Mars and asked for help. Subsequently, Parsons discovered that a squall had damaged the sail on Hubbard's yacht and brought him and Betty back. There, Parsons had the duo slapped with an injunction, which prevented them from leaving the country, and brought them to court, where he attempted to recover his money, but Betty intervened, reminding Jack that he had started his relationship with her while she was underage, and she could have charges pressed against him. So Parsons dropped legal action against Hubbard. Hubbard escaped with the yacht and Betty, and did his whole sailing expedition to South America. Parsons would never see either of them ever again. This is one of the things that got me interested in the topic, was to have these uh, three New Agey and occult figures. Aleister Crowley, the famous British witch, Jack Parsons, the rocket scientist and acolyte of Crowley, and then the future founder of Scientology, L. Ron Hubbard, all sort of interacting in this weird way. Now, you might think that if you got swindled out of your life savings by a con man, you might want to take stock of your life and start to question the kinds of decisions you were making. But not Jack Parsons. He um, actually was so distraught by the loss of Betty that he embarked on a two-week 
magical ritual program to summon a new girlfriend. I am not going to go into detail about what the magical ritual consisted of. If you're interested, you can go and confront the Babylon Working article by Henrik Bogdan in the Newman Journal. Let's just say that um, Jack Parsons had some strange experiences while performing this two-week ritual involving like electricity going out at the house. Um, and actually, Hubbard was still at the house at this time. So this actually took place. Let me get really clear. Jack Parsons loses his girlfriend to Hubbard but remains friends with Hubbard for an extended period of time before Hubbard runs off with the boat and the money. It was during that period that um, Parsons was doing magical rituals to get himself a new girlfriend, and Hubbard is said to have participated in those rituals. Um, at one point, Hubbard uh, yells to Jack, come quick, come quick. Jack runs into the kitchen. You know, he was just doing a ritual, and he but he has to break it up to go into the kitchen to find that Hubbard is confronting uh, like a grayish glowing blob in the kitchen, which uh, Parsons then exercised with a knife. So there was this weird period where Parsons was hanging out with and doing magic or magic with the man who had taken his girlfriend. Remember, he, he, it's part of his religion that he can't feel jealousy. So he's not able to admit to himself that he's in a bad situation. And it seemed to me that he had sort of a Freudian sublimination, sublimation kind of response that instead of like being angry with Hubbard, he sort of got more buddy-buddy than he really should have been because he was dealing with these feelings. Pendle speculates that some of the supernatural goings-on that occurred at the house during this time may have actually been created by Hubbard as a way to help uh, endear him further to Parsons, because Parsons records that uh, Hubbard had a supernatural duel fighting with throwing knives against some kind of specter that had come for Parsons. Parsons never saw the specter. It seems that Hubbard reported it. Now, Parsons would report to Crowley that this uh, long project he had to summon a new girlfriend worked. About a month after he had finished it, a woman showed up to me named Majorie Cameron. They tended to call her Candy. She had red hair and green eyes. She had been to the Agape Lodge about a year earlier, hadn't talked to Parsons, but Parsons had seen her from a distance and asked other people about her. He was really into witches. Parsons had read a book called um, Darker Than You Think, which is a story about a man who discovers that he is part witch, and he's being inducted against his will into a witch coven, the witch coven having infiltrated the entire world order. There are newspaper witches and military witches, and everywhere you go, the witches have a conspiracy to keep people from knowing that there are witches. Uh, Parsons apparently loved this book, and when a friend went to Europe and wrote Parsons and said, is there anything I can bring you from Europe? Parsons said, bring me a witch. So he was really into this Cameron girl, and he felt like he had summoned her. Now here's where things get weird and kinky. They spent several weeks basically just in bed together. And during that time, Parsons began to do various rituals that were intended to bring about the birth of the Antichrist or the incarnation of the goddess Babylon. Take your pick. 
Parsons had a deep-seated hatred of Christianity, seen as hypocritical and blaming it for a lot of the problems in the world. He lived in a repressive time, and he was clearly a real um, liberal-minded person. Maybe that's part of why he was so full of rage and hatred for Christianity. But he was trying to incarnate the Antichrist and bring on a new era. And he thought he had succeeded. The kicker for me, his new girlfriend Cameron actually got pregnant, and he had her have an abortion. Without commenting on abortion, whatever you might think about the justice or right or wrong of abortion, put that aside. I think it's unusual that this man did a ritual with the aim of incarnating a god. And then, um, well, when his girlfriend got pregnant, destroyed the future child. But the child would have been the Antichrist, so maybe it was the right thing to do. I'm not saying. Anyway, Parsons' life really seemed to go downhill from here, in my mind. He was able to get into many other rocket and explosive ventures as time would go on. But he ultimately was expelled from the emerging military-industrial complex as things got more serious in the world of rockets. There was more military funding, and the Red Scare got kicked up. There was just more security concerns. As I mentioned earlier, his association with communists led to Parsons coming under suspicion, but he was able to maintain security clearance despite that. What really cinched it for Parsons and had him expelled from that industry was that he began flirting with the idea of moving to Israel. And um, it appears that he was at one point being strung on by Israeli intelligence. There was an Israeli business interest that was saying, we could help you get citizenship in Israel, but we just need certain information. Parsons was supposed to produce uh, basically an estimate of what it would cost for them to build their own explosives factory. As part of that estimate, Parsons went to a company he was working at and borrowed files without permission and asked the secretary to photocopy the files. She got suspicious. It was the Red Scare, and Parsons had a reputation, reported it, and it all got found out. And um, Parsons insisted he wasn't doing anything wrong. He was going to copy the files. Then he was going to formally ask for permission to release the data to this organization that wasn't officially part of Israel. But I've read about how these intelligence spooks operate when they're trying to compromise you. What they do is they ask you to do something first that's shady, but not fully illegal, something where you could see where it's okay, but it's a gray area. Then once they compromise you, they ask for more. And as you get further compromised, they always have more on you, right? They have material that could put you in prison so they can hold that over your head and make you just keep working. I think Parsons was being run by Israeli intelligence. Some of the stuff I read said, you know, it's not really completely clear what was going on. In any case, he was being taken advantage of. He made a very bad judgment call. That was the end of his work in explosives and rocketry. He would go on to try to get funding to do his own explosives factory in Mexico. That would never work out because while he was doing research on his own at his home, he blew himself up at the age of 37. He was working with mercury fulminate. We don't know exactly what happened, but his wife came home to find that the house had been burned down. 
Jack Parsons was rushed to the hospital, but he died within a few hours. And his mother committed suicide by swallowing pills that same day. A tragic end to Jack Parsons. But in another way, the story continued. It would be years later that people would begin to write that the rituals Parsons had performed in his attempt to bring about the incarnation of the Antichrist or the goddess Babylon had somehow brought flying saucers into our world. Now, I've been hearing people talk about this for years, like kind of floats around in the UFO community, but I had never really tracked down who started to make these claims. I think it goes back to Kenneth Grant, who was another Thelemite guy, kind of a leader of the Thelemite organization after Parsons, who wrote, quote, the Babylon working, that was the ritual Parsons performed. The Babylon working began just prior to the wave of unexplained aerial phenomena now recalled as the great flying saucer flap. Parsons opened a door and something flew in. So here his evidence seems to be entirely circumstantial. The uh, Babylon working was performed from January to March 1946. And then uh, Kenneth Arnold had his famous flying saucer site over Mount Rainier in Washington, June 1947. So that's like a year later. The Maury Island incident, which I think is also one of the early uh, UFO, um, like the early like American UFO sightings. The Maury Island thing, 1947, also a year later. And it's not until 1952 that there was the DC flying saucer flap. I think that's the instance that got everybody really excited because that was when many people saw UFOs over Washington, D.C., and they were also captured on radar, and the president scrambled jets to try to intercept them, and it made all the national headlines. Oh, I guess the other big thing was um, Roswell. The Roswell crash also was national headlines. There were national headlines saying that a flying saucer had crashed. That was July of 1947. But my thing is that it was 1947 when UFOs took off. And Jack Parsons completes his ritual in the desert in 1946. I've also seen people try to link it to the uh, first atomic bomb test, saying that maybe it was the combination of this ritual in the desert with the testing of the atomic bomb, the Trinity site. Sorry, that was July 16th, 1945. So that was a year earlier. It's definitely a troubled three years with the atomic bomb, followed by this ritual in the desert, followed by UFOs showing up as flying saucers, um, kind of for the first time in American culture. There's a year spacing between all these events. It seems real circumstantial to me. That's my take. Now, there's this book floating around, Final Events, by Nick Redfern, which claims that he was contacted by a military insider and given Jack Parsons' FBI file, the unredacted file. If you do an, a Freedom of Information request right now, you'll get a redacted file on Jack Parsons, and a lot is just blacked out. Nick Redfern claims at one point he got the unredacted file, you know, illegally smuggled it out, and that it says that the FBI was asking Parsons questions about flying saucers, and what did he know, and did he think that magic was connected to flying saucers, and he affirmed, yes, he thought there was a connection. But Pendle, the biographer, says Parsons didn't talk about flying saucers. May have been one instance where he mentioned them, but generally not. The girlfriend that he picked up after the rituals, she would see a flying saucer. She would talk about flying saucers later when it became more popular, but never talked about Jack Parsons as having been into flying saucers or had any connection to them. 
So it seems to me this connection, this idea that Jack Parsons ushered in something from another dimension, possibly opened a gateway to hell, and thus brought in these demonic UFOs, that was something that was a, a myth kind of created after Parsons lived and died. And so that's it. That's the life of Jack Parsons. And I, if you're interested in this, I have an article that I just published on Medium titled, How Did Jack Parsons Believe in Science and the Supernatural? And there I go into detail trying to make sense of how a man of science could also take the supernatural seriously. And um, if you were interested in taking a look at that, take a look at that. And uh, I just want to leave you guys with the story that I've told you. This is more of a cultural story than it is a real investigation of the paranormal. I went into this thinking there would be something here that would be really interesting, you know, like this, who was this guy and was he pushing the edges of reality and moving beyond consensus reality? But the judgment that I came up with was that um, he was a brilliant man, he was very talented, but he had very serious personality flaws. I think he maybe was a little narcissistic, so he got caught up in a lot of bad decisions. And it just seems to me that when you make such terrible mistakes, that your your judgment is compromised and you might become desperate and you might fall back on all you have, which for him was his magic. And he had some a lot of personal problems that I think probably trace back to the fact that he grew up without a father, right? Because his mom never let him meet his dad. And then he has weird problems with women and weird problems with trusting, trusting the very man who's stolen his girlfriend. It just seems like he had some personality problems that to me indicate there isn't much we can learn about the occult or the paranormal from Jack Parsons, except for this, the man was as haphazard in his occult practices as he was with explosives. Aleister Crowley would write him letters and complain and say, you need to do the work before you do this more advanced stuff. You need to be more careful. I don't like hearing about you practicing black magic. I don't like you bringing voodoo into Thelema rituals. Parsons just ignored him. And it, I guess the takeaway you could have here, um, if you're going to get involved in the occult, you'd better be very careful. And the worst thing to do is to pursue the occult haphazardly. Look at how it worked out for Jack Parsons. For the Spectral Skull Session, I have been Dane. Stay strange and stay sane.